So we are still in lockdown in the UK because of the coronavirus or the COVID-19 pandemic, which continues to affect our lives in ways that can only be described as unimaginable. I hope you are doing well, well, I guess, as well as can be under these very difficult and challenging circumstances. If you have lost a loved one, a family member, a friend, a relative, a colleague in this pandemic, there's just no words for me to say. I am truly, truly sorry and please accept my heartfelt condolences and I'm sure um, I can say on behalf of everybody listening to this podcast that we are all sending our love and thoughts to you during these really challenging times. If you are unwell with symptoms, I am so sorry. I can't imagine what you must be going through and I hope you are making a healthy recovery. We are all sending you good thoughts and willing you the strength to get through your illness. My thoughts also go out to you if you fall into the vulnerable group and therefore are shielding yourself from the outside world. I hope you are managing to cope in these challenging times. The best we can do is to try and keep our spirits up as much as possible, staying safe by adhering to the guidelines and know that these times will eventually pass. Today's episode was supposed to be aired two weeks ago. However, as it became clear that the pandemic was ramping up, I decided to record an episode about the effect of the pandemic on breast cancer services, specifically in the UK. And I will leave the link in the show notes if you want to listen to that particular episode. So as a result, this episode um, is slightly delayed in being published. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the My Breast, My Health podcast. My name is Tasha Gandhi-Mihaja and I'm a breast cancer surgeon with over a decade's worth of experience. I created this podcast as a place where those who have been affected by breast cancer can connect with each other, share experiences and learn from each other's life stories. I will also have conversations with experts in the field of medicine as well as the health and wellness space. So if you want to learn more about this topic, then this is the place to be. The aim of this podcast is simple, to create a community where everyone feels empowered to help each other and support one another. This is because I truly believe that together we are stronger. I'm really happy to spend this time with you. So let's start build a community. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Now, if you are a new listener, welcome. I'm so grateful that you have found us and I hope you enjoy this episode and for those who are regular listeners, welcome back, my friends. Thank you so much for coming back. And I'm so happy to have you in my company again today. Now, some of you may know that this month we're discussing all things related to genetics and breast cancer. In the previous episode, I had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Munaza Ahmed, where we talked about the nitty gritty of genetics. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I'd highly recommend that you check it out. Today I'm talking to Sarah Robart, who is a genetics counsellor. Her work involves counselling patients about their genetics risk of developing breast cancer based on either their family history 
or the type of breast cancer they have been diagnosed with. We talk about what makes you eligible to have a genetic test and towards the end we talk about why you shouldn't even think about trying out the DIY or the direct-to-consumer genetics testing kits that you can buy over the counter. So sit back, keep your headphones in and put your phone in your back pocket. Enjoy my conversation with Sarah Robart. Hi Sarah, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Tasha. Oh, I'm so happy that you've agreed to come onto the podcast because during this month we are talking all things genetic, specifically related to uh, breast cancer. And I would like really to understand what happens when somebody is referred to a genetic counsellor such as yourself. So before we start, though, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a genetic counselor and I work with uh, a bunch of different type of people who might need uh, genetic counseling services. And uh, one one of that group of people is uh, people who have cancer, whether it's breast cancer or other different types of cancer, or if they've got a known um, cancer predisposing gene in the family, they might come to see someone like me. Contrary to what many people may think, the majority of breast cancer cases are in fact what we call sporadic cancers. So in other words, it's not genetically linked or um, hereditary and that only between 5 to 10% of breast cancers are actually caused by a genetic mutation. As a genetic counsellor, who are the type of people that you will see in your clinic? So the, the type of people that we, we tend to see are people who are suspected that they might fall in that 5 to 10% category, which is really, like, like you say, it's, it's a small percentage of cancer that's actually caused by a strong um, single gene that predisposes to cancer. So the, the type of people we see are, are the ones who have unfortunately developed a cancer either at a young age or they have a cancer and a, a strong family history of certain types of cancer. And, and so they come to us to try to have testing if, it's, if we think they fit in this, this high risk or 5 to 10% category um, to, to try to establish if there is a genetic cause for their cancer. Okay. Usually if I see somebody in my clinic and they come to a one-stop breast clinic, I assess them and uh, fortunately they don't have anything wrong. I, you know, there's, there's no concern in terms of from the breast point of view, but they have a family history. So perhaps their mother, their sister or an aunt, I will then refer that particular person to yourself. But of course, first of all, there is a certain criteria that they have to meet before I can refer them to yourself. Is that correct? Yes and no. And I think that the referral criteria is a, is a little bit dependent on, on, you know, where they're being referred to. But overall, in, in virtually all families, our first suggestion is for a person who has had the cancer in the family to have testing in the first instance. And so often we do get a lot of women who are referred in who are healthy and well and have never had a cancer, but we're actually uh, much less likely to find a, a gene alteration in them if we don't know what we're looking for, if we don't know, if we haven't already established the, the cause for cancer in the family. So those women who are healthy and well, we might, in the meantime, we might recommend some additional screening for them. But generally speaking, if there is a living relative who has had the cancer, we would often suggest that they get a referral in to their genetics service in the first instance. So say I see somebody whose mother had cancer, breast cancer and sister has had breast cancer. So 
you probably think, you know, there may be a genetic predisposition to breast cancer in that family. We refer somebody to yourself. Now, in your clinic, what will happen? If that person has a has um, a strong enough family history that we we see them in clinic, and it depends a little bit on the ages of diagnosis in the family. And uh, so often, for example, if it's um, a mother and an aunt on the mum's side with breast cancer, that in itself isn't a very, it's not necessarily a high risk unless we knew, for example, that the mother was very young, or there's also other cancers in the family that make us suspicious of one of those high risk genes. So to, to answer your question, though, so if we, um, if we saw the healthy, unaffected daughter in clinic, uh, what we would be doing is going through her family history in in detail and trying to establish exactly who has had cancer, how old they were when they had it, what type of cancer they had, and kind of trying to figure out whether this is a family that looks like it's one of those 5 to 10% where it might actually be a high-risk gene. If a person is, is still healthy and well and hasn't had cancer themselves, we're really unlikely to offer that person a genetic test because the results can be quite challenging to interpret. So we would suggest first that a relative who's had the cancer have, have a genetic test Yes. So then that's because, like you said, um, only 5 to 10% of women with breast cancer are likely to have a, a genetic gene alteration that's predisposing to cancer. So if we had done a test in that woman's mother and we hadn't identified any gene alteration, then there's really no point in offering other testing to, to healthy people in the family. We wouldn't expect to find anything. What do you need to do? Yeah, it, it's just a simple blood test. So the actual process of, of collecting the sample is quite straightforward, um, but it's really the technology and the interpretation of the test that is quite the, the challenging part there. So it, it's it's a blood test and we would be, depending on the family history and what, what we see in, in, in the family, we would be offering testing for probably a, a small number of breast cancer genes at once. And what happens from the point of having the blood sample taken is it's shipped off to the genetics laboratory. And from there, the genetic material is extracted. And the scientists essentially read through the genes that we've asked them to check and kind of like reading them through, like uh, looking for spelling mistakes in a book. Um, and so if we ask them to look at three genes, for example, they essentially have to read through three books for us and see if there's any spelling mistakes or typos in the text um, that would be known to, to cause a predisposition to cancer. And I think most people know what the genes that are tested for, but uh, what are they normally tested for? Yeah, so the, the, the common two that most people will have heard of are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 or BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. And Often also we'll, we'll check another breast cancer gene called PALB2, and that's P-A-L-B2. And, and those three genes um, confer a significantly increased chance of getting breast cancer. And for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, an increased chance of ovarian cancer as well. And then sometimes if there is additional family history or additional medical issues in that individual who's had cancer, we might um, go on and check additional genes as well. They're much less common. Uh, so we, we tend to use kind of clinical judgment based on what we're seeing in, in clinic. Sometimes somebody might come to you with a family history, but the, the person in that family who has had breast cancer has died. So you are not able to get any blood from that particular relative. What do you do then? 
Yeah, and it's it's a tricky situation, isn't it? Because often be, you know, the the relative who we might have wanted to test might have passed away from from their disease, or might have might have had cancer quite a long time ago, and and had, has passed on since then. So it, in those circumstances, occasionally there are opportunities for us to do a genetic test in an unaffected individual. And that's really only if the family history looks very suspicious that it is going to be one of these genes. So in in certain circumstances, if it's a really, really concerning family history where you're really suspicious, you might you might do a genetic test in a healthy, unaffected person. But there's um the genetic counselor would have to explain to that person that there's there's significant limitations to doing a test in that sort of circumstance and it can sometimes throw up results that aren't exact reassuring and they're not exactly abnormal either. So um, it, it's it's a proceed with caution sort of situation. Um, if not genetic testing, then the patient would be recommended to have some additional breast screening if, if the family history is, is, is so strong. If in the worst case scenario, if you were not able to do a blood test on an affected relative, the next best thing would be to do an intensive surveillance program for the particular unaffected person. Yeah, so they would be offered additional uh, breast screening compared to the average woman who doesn't have a, a family history. If obviously there are implications to the wider family members when you, you know, when you do genetic testing in the counseling process, how do you, how do you approach this? Because sometimes not all family members um, get on with each other and sometimes there can be quite difficult dynamics between family members. It must be quite a sometimes challenging uh, position to be in. Yeah, it can be quite sensitive. And, um, you know, patients have come through, you know, living their whole lives with, with their families before they come to us. So it's very hard for us to kind of come into the middle and, and potentially give them a result that could throw family dynamics into a little bit of stressful, stressful times. So we try to be sensitive about this. As, as part of the testing consent, we do explain to the patients that it could potentially have um, significant impact on family members risk for cancer and um and to be to be fair i'd say 95% of women i meet are and that's the exact reason that they're there is so that they can advise their daughters or their sisters about their risk so they're usually quite happy to say yes of course um you know i would i would be sharing this result with them as soon as i get it from you and Occasionally, there are people who are, you know, for various reasons in a difficult circumstance with their family. So we, we try to just predict as much as possible what difficulties might be encountered. And, and if there is a circumstance where a person is, is not willing to, for example, share their medical information with, with a relative, um, we can try to facilitate uh, a way in which they could share that information more anonymously. So we can provide women with an anonymous family letter. Um, in, in clinic, we call it a to whom it may concern letter, where it doesn't contain that person's name or the fact that they had a cancer, um, but, but essentially that a gene alteration has been identified in the family. This is the gene name, and here's the reference number you need to give your, to your GP. So that you could get a referral to have a discussion and a genetic test if you wanted it. And do you need proof of the fact that a particular relative has had breast cancer? I mean, do you take it as read that this unaffected individual has told you that, you know, a relative has had breast cancer and therefore could you, you know, I will be contacted them for a genetic test or do you have to see proof that that was in fact the case? It depends a lot on the circumstances. Um, if we were 
offering an unaffected healthy woman a genetic test and the, in those rare circumstances where we where we talked about when we would be able to do that for that to occur we would need to see documentation about uh, to confirm the cancers in the family just to make sure that we're looking you know in the right genes and that we actually have a suspicion that we might find something is it, but generally speaking if a woman says to me my mother had breast cancer at 58 and so did her sister I, and i i can make recommendations based on that and not necessarily need to go into confirming them with medical record review obviously we're talking about referring somebody to you with a family history of breast cancer but there are of course other cancers that are linked and what are those cancers that you would be particularly um, worried about if there is a high prevalence of that cancer in one particular family mm-hmm. um do you mean specifically with regards to a link with breast or that's correct yes. yes um so if i see um a family history of breast cancer especially in multiple generations at young ages that's that's a concern in its own right but your concern is further raised if if you hear of relatives who have had ovarian cancer as well sometimes uh, pancreatic and prostate can raise our suspicion about the uh, those genes that we mentioned the BRCA1 and 2 okay if you did discover a BRCA1 or 2 mutation in the affected person in that family because of course we had referred to you an uninfected individual how do you then convey that result to that particular person so the result would first go back to the individual who had who had had the test done. So we would we would bring that person who had had the genetic test and who had had the cancer back into clinic to talk about um, their specific cancer risks as a result and what they can do about those risks, what screening or surgery options are available to them. Um, and as part of that appointment, we would talk about the next people in the family who could have a test. In, in a predictive sense, to see if they had inherited this gene change and might also be at risk of getting cancer. So we would often give the result to the the individual themselves and encourage them to share it with their relatives. But we don't necessarily go ringing everyone else that we know in the family to disclose the result. We leave that in, in the individual's hands to disclose their result. Of course, because it's confidential matters, isn't it? It's exactly. It's up to that particular individual to share that information rather than you sharing it with others. That's right, yes. Now, if we kind of shift gear a bit and then talked about those individuals who have been diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, when they are diagnosed with uh, a breast cancer, there are particular criteria that would make them eligible for a genetic test. Yes. Um, so some of the eligibility criteria includes um, the age that they were diagnosed with the cancer. Um, so, of course, in, in genetics, it tends to be a, a younger age of onset or the, the type of breast cancer that they were found to have. So if a woman had a, a, a triple negative breast cancer uh, under the age of 60, that for us is, is an automatic eligibility for having testing for those three genes that we talked about, BRCA1, 2, and PALB2. Um, and then if, if it's not a triple negative breast cancer, then we would take into account the wider family history and the ages of diagnosis and whether a person's eligible or not. And what is your minimum age cutoff point that would make somebody who's diagnosed to have breast cancer to be eligible for a genetic test? The minimum age, it, it depends. You know, we, we've tested women in their 70s and 80s if they have a strong enough family history. Um, 
So it uh, it really depends on the, on the family history. So presumably they would go through the same process. They would have a blood test and the, the similar genes would be tested and then the results would be divulged to them, which will then have implications on the type of surgery that they may be subsequently offered. Yeah. So if it's a woman who's um, for example, undergoing breast cancer treatment and has genetic testing at that same time or through her, her treatment journey, then then yes, often if the results are available before she's had her surgery, there would be an option to talk about a double mastectomy um, instead of just doing a, a single one-sided mastectomy or one-sided surgery. And I, yeah, I have to say I'm not an expert on the different types of surgeries, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, certainly if, if you've been confirmed to have a high-risk gene alteration, then usually the risk-reducing surgery on the other side is usually an option, uh, depending on, on other things like, like other health factors and, uh, and other risks. Yeah. If a man has been diagnosed with breast cancer, would it be sensible for him to be referred to you for uh, genetic counselling? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, because we know it's it's so much less common for men to develop breast cancer. Um, it certainly would be appropriate to refer them in for an assessment. Um, now, we, we don't do genetic testing for every man with breast cancer. Um, there's certain other criteria that they, they might have to meet, for example, having relatives with ovarian or other breast cancer in the family. But given the, the rarity of the condition, it's certainly one that we could take a closer look at to see if it's appropriate to do genetic testing. The other, the other criteria is that um, somebody who has been diagnosed with breast cancer with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, they would also be eligible for genetic testing. Yep, generally speaking, that's, that's also the case. Now, depending on, again, the, their personal and, and family history of breast cancer, the type of genetic testing that they're offered might be slightly different. So we we currently have the ability to look specifically for gene alterations that are more commonly seen in people of, of Ashkenazi Jewish or in Polish ancestry. Uh, but uh, as, as testing criteria evolves, this, uh, this is a bit of a moving target at the moment in terms of the, the type of testing that we might offer. Okay, so it's um, currently being looked at in, in more detail. It might be modified in the future. Yes, yeah, that's right. His testing uh, criteria and the, the, the type of testing is, is evolving uh, in the NHS at the moment. Certainly in the UK anyway, there are certain criteria that has to be met for somebody to be eligible for a genetic test. And in, in my clinic, when I see somebody who has been diagnosed with breast cancer, they might ask me, okay, well, can I be genetically tested because I want to know if my cancer is genetically linked? What is the criteria in the UK for genetic testing on somebody who has been diagnosed with breast cancer at the moment? So most regional genetic services are operating on what we call a 10% threshold guideline, which is um, that there's at least a 10% chance that individual that you're testing will have a gene alteration. So it's about 90% or so of those patients, you won't find any genetic link to their cancer. So in order to meet that 10% threshold, uh, for example, if a woman had a triple negative breast cancer diagnosed under the age of 60, or a woman who has had two breast cancers or bilateral breast cancer, both of them under the age of 50. Or, uh, for example, a woman who's had a breast cancer under 45 and she has another close relative with breast cancer under 45. Or if there's just a strong enough cluster of breast, ovarian or other cancers that push our, our score over over the 10% threshold, then those people uh, would be considered for, for genetic testing. 
it's quite useful for us to be able to explain to to patients that actually you don't meet this criteria. So it's more likely that your cancer is not genetically caused. That, yeah, exactly right. And and um, I can understand why women in, in the first instance really want this genetic testing and want to want to be offered it. But the reason for having that 10% threshold um, is because genetic testing is not perfect. And there is always a chance when you do a genetic test that you find a result that is difficult to interpret. And these are called variants of uncertain significance, where it's not a clearly normal result and it's not clearly abnormal either. So part of the reason about having a certain threshold is is because of the risk of finding a result that you can't clearly interpret. And it can cause quite a lot of stress for, for the patient to know that they might carry this gene, but they might not. And those results can evolve over time, over, over years before we're able to clarify whether the gene alteration is, is relevant or not. Many of them end up not being relevant. Right. So the blood of that particular person is kept for some years. Yeah, so we, we tend to um, keep, after a genetic test is done, we tend to keep the remainder of the genetic material just frozen in the laboratory. And uh, usually nothing else is really done with that sample, but it's available sometimes for other relatives. For example, if, if that patient has passed on and we weren't able to find a genetic explanation for their cancer, if testing becomes more available or more in-depth in the future, sometimes we've, we've stored a sample so that future generations, their children, for example, could come in and, and see if additional testing is possible on the sample. So if somebody has got this variant of unknown significance, which is kind of neither here nor there, isn't it? With that result, you really don't know what to do with it. And I guess that's, as you said, one of the reasons why we don't just do genetic testing, because when you get that result, there's nothing we can do to offer any any reassurance because we don't really know what that means. And in the future, perhaps we will know what that means. But at this moment in time, we can't give them any further information as to whether that variant of unknown significance is increasing their risk of developing breast cancer. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and so for that reason, you're right, we can't really give them much reassurance about that result. We can, we can try to estimate about where it's likely to fall in the future, whether it's likely to be, you know, more information is likely to become available that pushes it one way or another as, with, as to whether it's cancer predisposing or not. But we, we wouldn't be recommending, usually we wouldn't be recommending things like risk-reducing breast surgery or ovarian surgery. And we certainly usually don't recommend testing relatives for that variant because it usually doesn't clarify things one way or another. So it's it can be feeling a bit stuck sometimes for patients when they get these results. Yeah. And how often do you get this result? Approximately 3% of the time, I would say, in doing a breast panel like this. And, and unfortunately, part of um, that chance of getting a variant of unknown significance, it, it's partly related to how much of um, when when scientists are reading through the genetic code in these genes to try to find out if there's any, let's say, spelling mistakes or gene alterations that would cause cancer, they're comparing it to a reference sample. And, um, and then if they find a gene alteration, they compare that to how often we see it in the general population. So for example, if they find a gene alteration, but it's present in one in 100 women, it's probably not predisposing in a strong way to cancer. Uh, depending on the ethnicity of a person, we may not have a lot of genetic reference um, for people of that ethnic background. So 
sometimes it can be that we tend to find these variants of uncertain significance because we simply don't have enough reference population data to make a, a good comparison. And it might just be that this gene alteration is harmless, but it might be seen more commonly if in, in their ethnicity, for example. You know, there's um, lots of commercial kits out there that you can get your, I don't know, you get your genes tested for various things. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's it's something I feel pretty strongly about um, at working as, as a genetic counsellor. Um, the testing that is done in these kind of home genetic testing kits is very limited and it's not doing a full proper check like you would get with a clinical test. There's, you know, I'm not going to name drop the, the name of the company, but there's a very popular at-home genetic testing kit where you spit in the tube and, and ship it off. And that, for example, it checks three common uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene alterations that we see commonly in people of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. So for a person who has no Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, this is essentially a meaningless test. Um, it's It's almost certainly going to come back with a normal result. And it wouldn't be checking for the thousands of other gene alterations that we know can occur in those genes. So it's um, it's always a little bit uh, soul-crushing for me when I hear about a woman who has had one of these tests and has been reassured by it, or falsely reassured by it, because they weren't looking for the correct gene alteration, either the gene alteration that's known to be in her family, or they weren't doing a proper test by looking at all of the genes in detail. And kind of the interpretation and the support to digest that result and to give them kind of meaningful context for it isn't there if you've just spat into a tube and you get the results on your computer screen. It's, you know, genetics is quite complicated and that's why people like me have jobs to help people understand their genetic risk and, and to give them an appropriate test if it's appropriate. Okay. So these DIY genetic testing kits is something you would not advise people to, to do? No, it's not something I ever really recommend for people to do. Um, if, if they, uh, you know, things like ancestry and, and ethnic background, you know, that's kind of fun and recreational genetics. Um, but for generally speaking, these, these at-home kits, when they're checking things for health and, and, and medical risk is not something that's, that's usually here nor there in terms of useful information. Right. Okay. Well, that's that's very useful to know because I think, you know, people don't know what is appropriate to use. And if people are being fed this information, on the face of it, it sounds like a great idea. But actually, as you said, genetics is a very complex system and a complex mechanism. And it takes a lot of expertise to be able to do the appropriate testing, read the appropriate textbook, as you said, to look for the appropriate mutations. And you just don't know w whether these are actually being done in the appropriate manner. Absolutely. And there's one other thing that I want to say about these direct-to-consumer cons genetic tests, which is some of them um, give you the ability to download your, uh, we call it your raw genetic data. So basically your, your genomic sequence from the, the test platform itself. And some uh, people, it's kind of in vogue these days, some people are putting their genomic sequence through other programs that will 
attempt to interpret your genetic data and, and spit out different results that your initial test that you paid for didn't do. Uh, and so these programs are notorious for identifying false positive results. And we do see these people who've come into clinic because they've done just this. Um, they've put their data through some other secondary program and it's come up that they carry you know, a, a high-risk cancer predisposition gene. And, and obviously, it's very stressful to get that sort of information you know, sitting at home in, in front of your computer screen. But the vast majority of these ends up being false positives that is just thrown out by the program, but it's not actually there in your genetic code. So it's something that we, we don't recommend people do this um, because it can, it doesn't usually give you any additional information about your health. Do you actually see many people come through your door, you know, having done these tests then? Uh, yeah, we, we, we see it fairly often. It's not something I specifically ask um, people I see in clinic if they've done a home test or not. I'd say the, the majority of people who come through my clinic are ones who are kind of seeking the appropriate clinical testing in the, in the right manner. But often I will hear of um, a woman whose sister has done a home, an at-home kit and had a normal result, so it must be fine. And, and so that that is when I really have to say no, no, no. She has to come in and have a proper test. Um, and then and then alternatively, we do see the the odd person in clinic who's put their raw data through an additional program and thrown up um, with a with a result that we then have to attempt to to parse out whether it's something likely to be real or not, or do an additional test to confirm whether it's there or not. And, and the vast majority of the time, it's it's nothing that that was even in their genetic code to begin with. Well, there you are. I hope, you know, the listeners out there heed this advice. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I hope the listeners out there have derived um, immense value from this. Thank you very much and um, hope to catch up with you soon. Thank you so much, Tasha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much once again to Sarah Robart for her expertise on today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, as you've heard, the area of genetics is quite complex. And so if you have a family history of breast cancer and you would like to know whether you or other members of your family may be eligible for a genetics test, then do raise this with whoever is looking after you, whether that's a breast surgeon or a physician, and uh, I'm sure they will have this conversation with you. I hope you've enjoyed the two episodes about breast cancer and genetics. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it is because I feel that there is a lot of misinformation and misconception around the subject. So I hope you have found it useful. If you haven't done so already, then do hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of the future episodes. And you can also share these episodes with your friends and family members who might benefit from it. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next one. Take care. Bye.